0: Well, good evening. Um, uh, We're gonna be uh, looking this week and next week, uh, continuing um, the series, Making Room for More. And we're focusing, particularly this week and next week, on relationships. And um, relationships in a reasonably broad sense. Um, This isn't the relationships talk. Um, If any of you grew up in church youth groups, I'm sure you've had to sit through somewhere. Um, Basically, the youth leader would sit you all down and do a talk about the birds and the bees. And uh, in fact, I think the one in our youth group was called Birds, Bees, and Boundaries. So uh, (laughs) all good. Um, And everybody just looks super awkward. It's pretty embarrassing. Most of us would just try and find a patch of carpet to fix our eyes on and just wait it out, you know. Um, But don't worry. If you're starting to feel a little hot under the collar, you can relax. This isn't about that. We're talking about relationships in general, family, friends, church, work, a big picture look at relationships, why they're important and how we can invest in them. And it's actually, I think it's a hugely important thing to think about, to engage with, because whether we realize it or not, we live in a culture that is one of the most relationally detached. One of the hallmarks of modern Western society is individualism. In fact, we live in one of the most individualistic cultures the the world has ever seen. Many cultures around the world and throughout history have had, for example, um, a a strong tribal identity where the primary identity is corporate. You know, I'm part of this tribe and part of this group, part of this community. Others have had a strong ancestral identity. You know, I'm part of this line of people connected strongly to those who came before me and to those who will come after me. And still others have had a strongly patriarchal identity where family and extended family is the center. Life and work and everything revolves around the family. And in these cultures, the primary language hasn't been me or I, but instead it's been us and we. People live and work and think and breathe with a strong sense of togetherness and interdependence. But one of the hallmarks of of the West, where we live, has been the focus on the individual rather than the communal. You know, it's my dreams, my life, my focus, my goals, my good has been the main language. And so often we move away from our families in order to pursue our careers. Individual progress is key. Independence is celebrated, along with uniqueness and individuality and reaching my potential. And you know, there's some amazing things about that. It's not that all that stuff is bad. But more than ever before, we live in a culture where there's huge potential for relational distance and for loneliness. And interestingly, what we see statistically is that it's a real problem. In, um, in 2010, The Mental Health Foundation conducted some research into loneliness, and um, of those they asked, 45% said that they experienced feelings of loneliness with some regularity. In 2013, in a survey of GPs looking at the impact of loneliness on health, um, 75% of doctors said that they see up to five patients a day whose main reason for visiting the doctors was loneliness. There's loads of statistics about loneliness in the elderly, um, but one of the surprises is that in another study, 25% of 18 to 24-year-olds reported feeling lonely most of the time. It means they tick the box to say lonely most of the time. Even in the young, one author writes, we're facing an epidemic of loneliness. It's strange, isn't it, that in, in, a in an age where the world is shrinking because of technology and travel, our relational gap seems to be growing. Never before has communication been easier. Smartphones, the internet, Skype, travel, social media, Facebook, Instagram, communication has never been so easy, but community, it seems, has never been so hard. Knowledge has never been more available, but truly being known, has never been harder. We can easily present ourselves, ourselves through social media to those miles away, but can struggle to be present ourselves to those even next door. For all the advances in communication technology, our connectedness can feel further and further away. We find ourselves less connected than ever. I don't know whether um, you saw any of these images recently by a photographer called Eric Pickerskill. Um, and the photos have literally just had smartphones or tablets uh, removed. And it's quite revealing. You know, this is what we spend hours a day doing. And it's something that a number of people have pointed to, that technology can actually be one of the issues, a contributing factor to relational distance. And actually, that sense of... That sense of loneliness that we can start to feel um, isn't always just an emotional problem. I recently read this and it said, um, the writer says, loneliness can increase the risk of heart disease by a third and must be treated as seriously as obesity and smoking, experts have said. That quote was based on 23 studies, including over 180,000 people taken from the University of York And uh, other statistics suggest that loneliness increases the risk of mortality by 26%. Research into it has has shown that those who are are experiencing loneliness, particularly extreme loneliness, have higher levels of cortisol, which is the, the stress hormone, which in itself creates health problems. And others looking into this have found evidence that even at a cellular level, there are changes in those who are experiencing loneliness. And the thing is, it all points to this, whether sociologically, psychologically, emotionally, or physically, one psychologist writes, human beings have a fundamental need for inclusion in group life and for close relationships. A fundamental need for inclusion in group life and close relationships. Relationships are crucial for humans to thrive, for you and me to thrive. And given the culture that we live in, I think it's well worth taking the time to ask the question, how do we make room for more and deeper relationships? What we're hearing from scientists and psychologists, sociologists, is actually something that the Bible talks a lot about. From the beginning, it argues that relationships are fundamentally important, but it also goes a step further, and it gives us a reason why and advice on how we might build stronger relationships. So I just want to spend a little bit of time just looking at those three aspects. The first one, the Bible tells us that relationships are important. You know, along with all those other disciplines, the Bible affirms relationships in a big way. If you just um, turn, if you've got your Bibles, very quickly to the very beginning, first page, Genesis chapter 1. and. As you do that, you'll see. There's you'll find the well-known creation passage, and uh, it has this repeated refrain over and over. So God says things like, "Let there be light," or "Let there be seas," or "Let there be animals and fish in the seas." And after every single thing, there's this refrain. And God saw that it was good, and He saw that it was good over and over, and He saw that it was good, and He saw that it was good. In fact, at this stage, everything was good. No sin, no pain, no sadness, no sorrow. But do you know what? The only, the, the only not good thing is in this paradise, in this whole passage, the only not good thing. If you look in chapter 2, verse 28, sorry, chapter 2, verse 18, it says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. The only not good thing in Genesis chapters one to three is the lack of relationship. The only thing that breaks the rhythm of this passage is a a lack of relationship. God looks at Adam, who's made in his own image, and he says this, he looks at him and he says, it is not good for him to be alone. I think, um, sometimes I think my wife Lizzie, Um, when she looks at me, particularly if I've had the kids on my own, um, I'm pretty sure those words or similar words pass through her mind that it's not good for him to be alone. Um, And she's probably right. I remember once taking my little boy Ruben to Nero's um, just to give Lizzie a little break. And... um, So I took him to Nero's, and I was under instruction, you know, not to give him any chocolate or cake or anything like that. It was basically controlled sugar intake. Um, So I was under these instructions, and we ordered some drinks, and uh, and it was all going fine. Then the lady said, "Oh, would you like some marshmallows?" And and I remember saying, um, "I was like, what even is mallow? Like, I." Does anyone know what mallow is? And so uh, I was like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's, yeah, great. Let's go for some mallows. Um, so we had a great time. Ruben had a great time. Um, got him home, and literally he was bouncing off the ceiling. In fact, he was doing that thing, if you've ever seen kids do it, but he was literally running around the, the, the um, sides of all the rooms in our house as if it was like some sort of running, racing circuit, uh, just round and round and round. And um, Lizzie looks at me, and she's like, what have you given him? And I was like, nothing. I, we didn't have any chocolate, we didn't have any cake, didn't really have anything. I mean, he had to drink and then he had some marshmallows. And um, I could see her looking at me and I was like, what even is mallow? Um, <laughs> turns out mallow is, like, is basically sugar, like pretty much just sugar. Um, I think it would have been better had I given him chocolate. Um... But it's moments like that when I think, I can almost see it ticking in her head that she's looking at me thinking, it is not good for you to be on your own. And, and I start to even think it about myself, you know, I'm like, maybe it's not. Um, but at the very beginning, the Bible recognizes and emphasizes the importance of relationship. The only not good thing in, in this, the start of Genesis is the lack of relationship. And then as we move on from that, literally, the very next verse says, um, "God gives His first command to the man and woman in, in verse 28. He says this, He creates them, blesses them and instructs them, "Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply." Don't worry, um, it's not a sne- sneaky way to get birds', bees and boundaries in there. Um, but he, God says, "Be fruitful and multiply." His plan wasn't for isolated humans. it was for society. Even at, these early, even at these earliest moments in the Bible, what is inescapably clear is that God's plan and purpose, his design was for relationships. So the picture at the beginning of the Bible is of relationships being important. And actually the picture at the very end of the Bible is the same. In the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, we get this picture of heaven This moment when God will restore all things, where there'll be no more tears, no more sadness, no more sorrow, and it's a picture of how things should be, and the picture isn't of isolation or loneliness. It's full of people, 10,000 upon 10,000, worshiping God, it's a picture of community. Over and over, the Bible shouts, relationships are important. Relationships are important. But even more than that, it offers a reason why. Why do we have this, as a psychologist put it, why do we have this fundamental need for a relationship? Why is it there? Where does it come from? Why does our emotional and physical well-being decline when we lack good relationship? Well, again, in Genesis 1, verse 27, it says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And it's this huge claim that we weren't just created randomly, accidentally, but specifically in the image and likeness of God. And then the reason why that's of interest regarding our own need for relationship is because of the way the Bible describes the God in whose image we've been made. It differs from every other view of God in the world. The post word is uh, Trinity, that God is is one, but also three. If you were here at the baptism service a few weeks ago, you might have noticed as John and Debbie dunked people under the water, they would say, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The God of the Bible from eternity past is one, but also three. One God, but three persons, and it's not the, the place really to go into how we understand that. I'm not even sure we can understand it. It's, it has its mystery. Um, but across the world, this is how, and across history, this has been the Christian idea. One God, but three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for our purposes today, what that means, and this, this is huge, what that means is that according to the Bible, God, ultimate reality, the one in whose image we're made, on whose blueprint we were built, whose DNA we carry, is in his very being and essence, relational. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed perfect relationship with one another for eternity. And you are made in his image, in the image of a relational God, hardwired for relationship. It's in our DNA. The reason why relationships are so important, that we have this fundamental need for them, the reason we struggle without them, according to the Bible, is that we were created for them. It's what we were created for. And, um, and things just tend to function better when they're used for what they were created for. Um, my wife and I, were currently renovating a house. Um, a new house is our second shot at it, um, we did it a few years ago and it was a bit of a learning curve to be honest, it involved quite a lot of, well a bit of DIY, uh, but it's not my strength, um, th- that whole area, um, we, we sort of refer to DIY as destroy it yourself when it comes to our house and me in particular. Um, but I remember we had this banister and it needed stripping uh, and it felt like it was covered by about, with about a million layers of gloss paint. And um, so I tried to sand it down, but didn't really make any headway. And then uh, we got some of that. You can get this like, chemical stuff that you paint on it, and it's supposed to help. And it didn't really make much difference. Uh, and so um, a friend of ours said, what you need is a heat gun. Um, what you need is a heat gun. It basically, basically blows hot air onto it and you can sort of scrape it off as it, it just starts to peel off. And um, so, But I didn't have a heat gun. So um, I was trying to think well, what could we use, what could we do, so rifling through the cupboards. And um, eventually, what I did find was a um, little creme brulee blowtorch, um, <laughs> which. Some of you would be like, bad idea, it wasn't, that's not how I responded, I thought, amazing, it's like manna from heaven. Um, anyway, I think it went fairly well, you know, um, it went fairly well apart from nearly burning the house down and, um, and poisoning myself with whatever the fumes that come from gas, burning, burning um, uh, gloss paint is, I don't even know what they are, but I inhaled a lot of them. Um, <laughs> In fact, if, you, if, you do ever, if you're ever round our house, you'll notice all up the banister, there are little burn marks all the way along where, um, for, because of this learning curve. Um, <laughs> anyway, eventually we got a heat gun, and it all went well. Like once we got that heat gun, it was absolutely fine. Uh, it's a silly story, but the point is this. Um, the creme brulee blowtorch wasn't designed for stripping a banister. It was designed for nice little creme brulees. And, uh, It wasn't designed for stripping of aniseau, the heat gun was. And things just work best when they're doing what they're designed to be doing. We weren't, the Bible says, designed for isolation. We were designed for relationship, for community. We're most fully alive when we live in line with this purpose. So when we read the psychologist saying human beings have a fundamental need for inclusion in group life and close relationships, or doctors and studies pointing to the very real health implications of loneliness, or when you personally feel the loss of relationship and the pang of loneliness in your own life, the Bible would just say, yes, exactly, it's not weird. It's not weird to feel those things. You were made for more than that. You were made for relationship. And so I think it makes sense in, in light of all of those things to ask the question you know, if relationships are so important, to ask the question, well, how then do we go about building and nurturing good ones? How do we build and nurture healthy relationships? And um, you don't have to be at the point of extreme loneliness in order to engage with that question. How do I go about building good relationships if they're so important? And then I just want to spend the rest of the time today looking at this. Susie's going to pick it up here next week as well. You know, there are so many things that could be said at this point. Trust is a big thing. You know, being intentional intentional about meeting people, developing social skills, being vulnerable, being honest, committing time and energy, making yourself available. But we're just going to take one passage from the New Testament in the Bible, and look at what it says, because it's a passage that talks about relationships, but it it, it talks about how we are in relationships. It deals with our attitudes. It deals with us. Because relationship, real relationship, isn't just dependent on going along to a small group or coming to church or going to a social club or doing X, Y, Z, but it's dependent on the sorts of people we are. So let's look at what the Bible says, this book that so affirms relationship, what does it say about cultivating them? So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you'll know this passage, I'm sure. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Amen. <laughs> Couldn't resist. Um, uh, you'll know that passage, I'm sure. Um, it's almost a switch-off passage, right? Because we've heard it so many times, weddings, I don't know how many weddings I've heard that at. Um, but the interesting thing is that the context of this passage, the context of that passage isn't actually marriage. It's, uh, obviously, it's relevant to marriage, but the context isn't actually marriage. Paul, who wrote this, is writing to a church in the city of Corinth, a church that he founded and that he cared for. And a uh, church here isn't referring to a building or an office or structure in society. It's just referring to people, to Jesus followers in an area who'd formed a community to follow Jesus together. But this church, these people were having real issues, particularly in their relationships with one another there were factions developing, quarrels and divisions. In chapter one, at the very start of the letter, letter, there's a whole section, and it's called Divisions in the Church. Some were following one leader, others another leader, still others another, and um, in chapter three he writes that there is jealousy and strife among them, and in chapter six that some members of the church were suing other other members of the church in the law courts, and there were just loads of problems, relational issues, and it's within this context, this context of division, that we come to this passage. It's not firstly for marriage or about marriage but it's firstly Paul's attempt to deal with relational issues in a church. And so here we have some wisdom from Paul about healthy relationships within the community much like ours. You know, we all struggle with these things, don't we? Jealousy, envy, gossip. We don't have to dig very deep to find those things. Um, Recently, um, as I said, we bought this new house, and... It's literally around the corner from our old house, but it has a really big garden. In fact, one of the biggest gardens in our area. And um, it's amazing. When we saw it, we were just super excited. Um, it's way bigger than our old garden. And for, the, for our boys, you know, it's going to be great running around and kicking footballs and things. Um, but it wasn't long after we had our offer accepted that I looked over the neighbor's fence. And in comparison, their garden is like a park. It is unbelievable. In fact, it, I think it is the biggest garden in the area. And, um, you know, it's the biggest plot, it gets more sun than ours. And my first thought was, and I remember saying to Lisa, I was like, well, can we, is it too late just to try and buy that one? <laughs> we could just make an offer and see. Um, and then I had serious thoughts about, well, maybe I can, um, maybe we can just make an offer for some of their land. You know, um, and I even um, raised this in a sort of semi-jokey, semi-serious, semi-jokey way uh, with the neighbour saying, you know, maybe we could buy some of the continent that you have in your back garden, Um, you know, sort of slightly just joking, just joking, but seriously, but joking, Um, but seriously though. um, you know, and then we started to think, they're not even using it, why do they have so much land? It's so unfair, and it wasn't long before we just started calling them, oh yeah, the, the big garden people over there. And uh, you know, and our garden suddenly felt pokey and small, and we were like, this thing, why have we bought this thing? Anyway, clearly I'm over it. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't take much, does it, for little seeds of division to grow. They may feel small initially, but things, envy, strife, those things just grow and they breed division and disunity. I don't want that stuff to get in the way of my relationship with with our neighbor. What a stupid thing, but jealousy and envy, these sorts of things can just start to pull us apart. And it's what was happening in in Corinth in this church. And so, um, so Paul writes to them, and he begins in verse one to three, and he says this, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging symbol, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. We'll look at the, next, the rest of the passage in more detail next week, but he starts to get quite practical further on, but his big thought is here in this section, and if we miss this, we miss the point, we miss the key. He mentions four things that the Corinthian church would have seen as evidence that everything was okay. Firstly, speaking in tongues. Secondly, prophetic insight and knowledge. Thirdly, faith to move mountains. And fourthly, giving everything to and for others. And they're four amazing things that the church would have recognized as really good. In fact, they would have put a lot of stock in these things. They were, the, they were criteria for an outstanding Ofsted. It's like he paints this picture of a church and individuals firing on all cylinders at the top of their game, nailing it, you know, high fives all round. It's a picture of success. But, and there's a big but, and he repeats it each time, but without love, it means nothing. Love is the key point in this passage. How well you love each other, he says, is the best and only real measure of how you are doing, more than gifting, more than success or ability. To this relationally strained church, his advice is, love one another. But and this is, this is the big thought, it's not love as we might think of it. I wonder what you do think of when you think of love, maybe Hollywood, the way it paints it, passion, birds, bees, boundaries, paternal love. Sacrificial love, feelings of affection, roses, maybe Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts, that sort of thing comes to mind. But the word Paul uses for love here is the word agape. And it's interesting because um, before the New Testament, the word barely existed, no one ever used it. But Paul uses it here and it actually becomes the main word used in the New Testament, it's used over 116 times. And one commentator, it should come up on the screen, but he defines it this way. What is this sort of love? It's, it's a love for the utterly unworthy. It's a love lavished on others without thought to whether they are worthy of it or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the beloved. Love that seeks nothing for itself, but only the good of the loved one. That's an amazing definition of love. A love for the utterly Unworthy. Proceeding from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the beloved. Love that seeks nothing for itself. That is amazing. So why when there were other words that they could have used for love, why did they land almost exclusively on this one? Well, they had to find a love and a word for love that described the sort of love that they'd seen in Jesus. The love they had completely gripped their hearts. None of the other words were good enough. What Jesus had done for them revolutionized their understanding of love. In fact, one of the disciples, John, he writes this. Um, it's amazing, but he writes this. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. Christ died for us. It's like, this is how we know what love is. Look at Jesus and what he did for us. It's like it totally revolutionized their understanding of what it was to be loved. And what they saw in Jesus was a sacrificial love. God who gave his only son to die on a cross for them to take the weight and punishment for their sins so that they could be forgiven, so that they could be free from guilt and shame. The love they experienced in Jesus was radically sacrificial. He gave his life for them. And it was an undeserved love Paul, um, who wrote this passage in Corinthians, um, he encountered the love of God while while he was persecuting and and killing Christians, and he never got over it. The love he experienced wasn't because he was so lovely or so deserving, but actually almost entirely the opposite. He writes in one place, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Crazy, while we didn't deserve it, hadn't earned it, God loved us. The love they experienced in Jesus was entirely undeserved. And it was also, it was unconditional. It wasn't depending, dependent on them getting everything right all the time. It didn't ebb and flow with how well they were doing. Like on a good week, there's a bit more love. And on a bad week, there's a little bit less. It wasn't anything like that. In fact, it had very little to do with whether they were living up to it or not. They all deserted, all of his disciples deserted Jesus in his hour of greatest need, and yet he loved them. The love they experienced in Jesus was unconditional. It's the sort of love that, as the definition said, is dependent on the nature of the one doing the loving, not on the worthiness of the one being loved. God is love. is who he is. And so he loves us, not because we're cuddly and lovable, but because he is who he is. Some of us are like, of course he loves me, who wouldn't, You know, who doesn't? Um, but it's not about what we're like, it's about what he's like. He's loving, merciful and gracious and kind. And whatever we are doesn't change that in him. His love for us depends on him being loving, not on us being lovable. That is radical, that is crazy. Every other religion, has ways to earn favor with God. God responds to these good works or these good works, but not here. Jesus loved those who spat in his face, who put nails through his hands, who mocked him. That's the love that gripped their hearts, changed their lives, and so they found a new word for it. And Paul takes this word this loaded word this word that carries with it everything that they experienced of god's love for them and he says this he says you you love in this way love like god loves that is the big thought and actually it's not just here paul does it all the time in philippians chapter 2 there's another church struggling with disunity and arguments and um, And he says this to them, he says, when you think about those things, think this way, have this mind among yourselves, yourselves," he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's like he's saying, when you're finding relationships difficult and you're feeling angry, think about the way God loves you. When you're trying to think, what should I do? Think about, think this, think, what did God do for me? What does his love for me look like? love one another like God loves you and in another letter um, he's writing to the church in Ephesus and um, in chapter 5 he's talking to married couples and he says this husbands love your wives how as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her it's like he's saying when you are thinking about what it really means to love one another think about it this way think this when you're thinking how should I love think this what did Jesus do for me and love like that sacrificially, unconditionally, even when it's undeserved. You know, if you're married, that, this is actually it's hard, it's not, it's not easy. Anyone married here ever get irritated with their spouse? Anyone? Yeah, I can see a few husbands keeping your hands down, it's pretty wise. Uh, a couple of bold guys at the back there, bold or foolish, I don't know. Um, but it's hard. Love like God loves. Not like Hollywood or like books or magazines suggest. Love like God, sacrificially, selflessly, unconditionally. That sort of love will breathe life into your relationships. And it's no different here in Corinthians. The word he uses for love is the term that carried all of this thought with it. They were struggling and Paul's big thought is this. Love one another how God loves you. but it's not easy. But I think there's, um, there's three things that can, that can help us. It doesn't make it easy, but I think three things that can be helpful for us. Um, the first is this, and I'm just gonna rattle through these, but the first is this, that we can experience this love ourselves, this sort of love ourselves, if we open our hearts to God and ask him. But we have to do that, we have to open the door For the first time, or for the millionth time, we can experience this sort of love. And knowing it in your heart, experiencing it, makes it a lot easier to walk it out. We can experience it. Secondly, we can see a great example of what it looks like to live this sort of way in Jesus. If you just go, even from here, if you go away tonight over this week and read about Jesus in the Gospels and just ask that question, what, how did he love people? What did it look like? Because there's, we've got a great example as we read about Jesus of what it looks like. And I think that can help us. It gives us some tools, some example to follow. And thirdly, um, the Bible says that we don't have to do these things on our own, that God lives in us by his Holy Spirit and that he helps us. So all we need to do is ask him to help us. If we're struggling, if we're finding it difficult, we just need to ask him to help us and he will. Help me to love like you. If we wanna make room for more deep and real relationships, then Paul's advice and big thought is that, love, learn to love one another. Learn to love like God loves, sacrificially, selflessly. Susie's gonna look a little bit more next week about how that plays out practically. There's some useful things in the passage here, but if we can learn to love in this way, we will increasingly become the sort of community in which the lonely and the broken can come and find a home, the type of community in which people can be really known, the type of community that stays in relationships even though they get hard, the sort of community that reaches out to the unlovely The sort of community that deep down we long for and were made for. The sort of community where relationships go deep.